morning, everybody. I'm Charlie Fink. I'm Jason Chilowitz. It's the 18th of February, 2022. Uh, our guest is Greg Castle of Anorak Ventures. He's invested in a number of big VR and AR deals, including uh, the company formerly known as Facebook uh, in its early, early days. So uh, it'll be interesting to hear about what he's seeing uh, and what he's doing. Uh, uh, as always, our thanks to our sponsor, Verbella. So let's get started, Ted. First of all, your company has a new name. Yeah, morning. I guess uh, part of the news today is a little bit about us. Um, and, you know, when you introduced me in, in years past before it got so commonplace that we didn't even talk about where I work as my day job, uh, it was paramount for a long time. And then I migrated to the corporate um, sort of uh, umbrella of, of everything, which is Viacom CBS or was Viacom CBS, which encompassed obviously CBS, MTV, Comedy Central, Nickelodeon, et cetera, et cetera, all these brands. Uh, and Viacom was the uh, was the, the sort of holder of all that. Um, but from a brand equity standpoint, um, there's huge brand equity in things like CBS, MTV, Nickelodeon, Comedy Central, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, in Paramount, which is, you know, the original U.S. movie studio and has quite well, a lot of houses across the country had Paramount on them. Yeah, quite a lot of, of brand uh, attachment and affinity. And of course, with our success with Paramount Plus, our streaming service, which is now just going gangbusters, um, it made a lot of sense to actually bring all of our brands under the Paramount umbrella instead of the Viacom umbrella. So Viacom is no more. There's a new stock ticker, uh, and you know there's lots of offerings. We had a big uh, investor uh, presentation a few days ago, which is public. You can go out and, and watch it. And um, uh, so it's exciting times for for me personally um, because uh, you know Paramount is sort of where my home originally was and now is again. Paramount, right? You bought Pluto TV. Yep. Kind of a, a little thing. Everybody was what? <laughs> yep. Turned out to be a pretty big thing and a pretty yeah. successful thing. Yeah. That there's lots of ways uh, to attack that market. And, you know, uh, paid streaming is only one of them. And a lot of people are looking for an offering that is not paid streaming. And it was very, very successful and continues to grow uh, exponentially. Uh, well, it's just another sign of people unbundling from cable, which is a terrible thing. Mm -hmm. um, it's just, you know, easy. Yeah, so you know it's it's been an interesting uh, few weeks for for all of us, and uh, an interesting time uh, to rebrand the the company um, after the merger. Yeah, back, rebranding you know. is in the air, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so you know it's uh, it's been fun. Exciting. So, did you watch the Super Bowl? Of course, absolutely, and then uh, and then and then more more akin to our world, attempted to watch the Foo Fighters concert in VR, and it took me about an hour. I eventually did get in. I was one of the lucky few that did manage to get in, uh, but it took a long time to I'm manage just, to get. In. You know, typical of Facebook, they do this great thing by doing this free concert for Foo Fighters, and it's scheduled for right after the Super Bowl ends. I guess it was scheduled for eight. Right? Mm -hmm. So I got in there at ten of eight, and yep. I, I was completely stuck. And afterwards, they blamed unprecedented demand. Yeah, which in in by by an order of scale to their understanding is true. But you would think, you know, that they, they should have expected it. They advertised it and promoted it pretty heavily. Yeah, and a lot of people have. That, yeah, they should have expected it because they spent tens of millions of dollars promoting it. Promoting it. A lot of people have Quest headsets and wanted to get it. I understood yeah, the numbers. Their response was uh, watch it on Facebook Live. What do you want? Yeah. Yeah, I understood the numbers were about 60 or so thousand people all attempted to go in roughly at the same time. And it just 
crashed everything. Um, now, they did eventually recover. And because the actual stream wasn't live, it was pre-recorded, it worked fine. And once you got in, it was OK. But I was talking about this with a group of people yesterday. To me, it's a classic innovator's dilemma situation, where when you find success with something, you're often technically not prepared for it if it's new, right? Even big companies with huge amounts of resources um, cannot fully anticipate what's going to happen when it actually goes live with that many humans all trying to do something simultaneously. And we've seen this over and over again with computer uh, systems not ready for the task. I believe 60,000 people overwhelmed their system. Uh, me too, but you know, I guess in that situation with that level of engineering and what they prepared for, it was a no-go, but eventually they got it to work for some of us. Okay. So. So, so what did you think of their commercial? Um, you know, I thought it was fine. I mean, I, I, it was cute. I, I mean, it, it didn't really affect me positively or negatively. It was nice that it's mainstream media and, you know, it was cute and fine, you know. Here's something weird that I observed during the Super Bowl. About half the ads, you didn't know what they were about through mm -hmm. most of the ad. Yeah. Right? So that was the thing about Questies. Is it about this discarded animatronic dog <laughs> but they didn't put a headset on the dog until they were the end, yeah. three quarters of the way through the commercial so yeah. i didn't feel like that was a big aha however that was the moment i said oh this is about that's the that's West. the press commercial <laughs> right, right. Yeah. there was one other commercial that i was sitting there thinking oh it's for the olympics uh or it's nike yeah and that is also a commercial that did not reveal that it was a commercial for Scientology mm -hmm. until the last five seconds of the one minute, $10 million commercial. Yeah. And I feel like that's not the first time. I mean, I could be wrong. I keep going back in my memory that Scientology has made a big play for a, a commercial in the Super Bowl. And I think um, the Seventh Day Adventists did it once too. Um, I mean, how is that uh, even legal? Well, it's it's free speech, I guess. I mean, yeah, it's, but I mean, we live in a free country. So, you know, paying that kind of money for the Super Bowl seems to be an indication that they have excess money that they should be spending on doing good if the religion had any kind of... Yeah, that's you know, probably a, a whole different discussion for our, for our spinoff podcast, Charlie, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, listen... Um, uh, other tech news this week. Our friend Kyle Jackson from Tailspin yes. raised another $20 million, bringing his total haul, I think, to about 40 or $45 million. Yep. At this point, Tailspin uh, is a, let's call it, spatial corporate trading platform, because I think their primary uh, means of transition, transmission is PC, but it also works uh, in VR. Right. Right? The original plan was they were going to be a studio producing content for this other distribution platform. Um, but they've revised that uh, to creating a platform for their clients not to rent or lease or uh, license their content, but rather to make their own. Yeah, to put up their own content. And then, and then going the other way, the clients having made this content can then offer it to other companies if it is you know, uh, of a relatively generic uh, nature. Some of it will be bespoke and private to the company, um, and it takes Tailspin off of the hook for having to produce something original for every client. So, twenty million dollars says it's a smart bet for them. They have a lot got a lot of traction over the course of the pandemic. 
Yeah, and you know, in in our industry, we call that a white labeling strategy. That's what that's that's what that's called in the industry, where you take your offerings and your services, and you allow others to ride on top of them, uh, and you have some flexibility on you know how it's branded. Is it branded through the the corporation that created it or the corporation that's using it. And it's kind of an interesting uh, way to grow. Um, but Kyle and I are, uh, are friends, just like you and Kyle are friends. And it's great to see that success. It continues to be a running thread in our conversations about the success of spatial platforms, virtual reality, mixed reality in corporate training and you know various points of industry uh, across the the food chain, as it were, uh, and it's a very smart bet for investors. It's a value bet, right? It's, you're not looking for this sort of skyrocket to the sky that uh, sort of consumer bets are. You're looking for this to be a company that's going to be around for a while and continue to sustain growth as headsets become more useful, um, more ubiquitous, and, and more functional, right? So it's a, it's a very smart play. So uh, we've got one more piece of tech news. Beam, a company that makes um, an AR holographic app yeah. That allows you to stream yourself, you know, from your smartphone. So, you know, I was watching uh, their CEO, you know, live and he mm -hmm. was screaming to me while I was talking to him. Um, it can't, it's not two way yet. That's right. the big thing that, I mean, you, you can stream yourself and that's kind of cool, right? Because you could stream yourself into like a Zoom call. Yeah. Uh, but I think that the real thing, and they, he says this is the entire focus of the $4 million that they just raised, is to make it two-way. Mm -hmm. It's not yeah. quite volumetric because the cameras aren't there yet. Right. Um, but it's certainly headed in that direction there. Uh, the image has no artifacts or dust on it. Um, it. It's in the column on Forbes if you want to see a picture of it. Yeah. But, but it's a pretty, pretty impressive uh, image, as good as the one I saw taken by the Connect and viewed with the HoloLens from Cisco, um, you know, which is called WebEx hologram. That's, so that's right. two people can be physically present if they're both wearing a HoloLens yeah, and, and Connect camera. So the idea of replacing the Connect with a smartphone is a really powerful one. Yeah, and you and I have a have a strong belief structure that this is absolutely an emerging growth category. That we're refining the tech stages now, figuring out the usefulness of it, figuring out how to get it to a stage. Call it over the next ten years, where it will be become as commonplace as traditional two dimensional two D pixel video chat. We're going to do true three dimensional video chat applications and training applications and bringing 3D objects in and being able to move around them. Uh, and a lot of this relates and sort of centers around what is the device that we're going to wear to really see them? Because a smartphone is not the end game for this type of application. Right. And, and actually, you have to have a spatial you device. That out. I mean, that, that this is a technology that has to get built into glasses. Right. But as I have said over and over again, there has to be a capture mechanism. Mm-hmm. You know, otherwise you need an AI to reconstruct a person. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm an, I'm an investor in a volumetric capture company called 3Infinite. There's a lot of, uh, obviously our friends at Microsoft have, you know, the, the, the big boys are attempting to do this in various ways and building a, a small cottage industry out of volumetric or, you know, sort of pseudo volumetric capture use cases. Um, but, you know, I, I, I like this because it's such an early stage uh, use case provability, right? Um, that, these are really early test build and discovery of multi-year journeys to get us past what we do today. He, he intimated that they're talking to um, several manufacturers, uh, people who are developing glasses uh, about trying to integrate uh, their system. Right. 
again, I'm not sure how it integrates because glasses face out. Yeah, that's part of the challenge, right? I mean, one of the most intriguing things I saw over the years when we used to go to Connect in person was uh, Carmack introduced a couple of his scientists from the Facebook Reality Labs where they were doing, uh, the, you know, people would do a scan of themselves in advance and then they would have inward bounding uh, sensors, cameras that would face you and it would replicate your face and your movement of your eyes and your mouth. And it was sort of stunningly amazing, but of course, way out of the cost of, of any kind of consumer being able to do it. And then that, again, that's that 10 year journey of you bring the cost down to a point where you have a certain type of headset that is your communication headset. And it actually sees you inward, takes your scanned version, rigs it up and allows you to talk to the other person while you're wearing a headset without them seeing the headset. Well, I, I should also say that, of course, most people will have a smartphone with their headset. Mm -hmm. so in fact, they could use their smartphone as the broadcast mechanism and the headset yeah, yeah. As, as the screen, so to speak. Greg's here. Let's bring him in. Oh, good. Great. He's beaming up now. Yeah. Hi there. Hey, hey Greg. Greg. You are live on This Week in XR with myself and Ted Shilowitz. I, I think you guys have not uh, been acquainted, uh, but Ted is the futurist for the company now called Paramount. Right. Maybe you've heard of us. <laughs> <laughs> nice to meet you, Ted. Nice to meet you, too. And I think I'm we have some friends in common. I, yeah. I'm excited to have you on the show, uh, and part of the reason that I, I was um, anxious to get you in is that I read and I actually used Blake Harris's book about Facebook, uh, you know, and the acquisition of Oculus called the history of the future. And then of course you were mixed up in that through, I guess, your relationship with Brendan Aribe mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Legend. Yeah, and, <clears throat> and Nate and Michael <clears throat> yeah. and Palmer. Yeah, uh, no, it's a great story and I highly recommend the book. It's, there's so much to learn from this story, uh, not just about technology, but also about uh, business and venture capital and really how the world works in Silicon Valley. And you are an expert on that. <laughs> Thank you. By the way, I, I'm glad that we all got the memo about the, the white guys in black shirts. That's, yeah, it's the tech bro, uh, the tech bro uniform. is important. Uh, yeah, the, the, you know, in the first year of the show, we exclusively brought in female guests because we thought, you know, two, you know, boomers from the East Coast who were white haired, you know, it would be too much of a, a like car talk for Jews. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we did want to find a balance point. And we did. We were actually quite successful and people gave us kudos for making sure we were balanced. These days, that, it's just about finding the right guests that can talk that, about that something. Gave us, that gave us a little more permission. And that was also a very fraught moment in the summer of 2020 when we started doing this. Right, right, right. right. Anyway, <clears throat> yes, you're... you're um, you brought up Blake Harris's book, um, uh, you know, should check it out, uh, History of the Future. It's about the founding of Oculus. Um, um, yeah, it's, you know, I think Blake, one thing that I love about Blake's writing is um, he does a great, he's a great storyteller. The subject matter he chooses is often around um, technology. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> you know, he wrote Console Wars. Yeah, Console Wars is one of my favorite uh, tomes about this type of fodder. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I'll tell you, I would put up there, I mean, I have a marketing background. I would put 
um, Console Wars up there as one of my favorite marketing books mm -hmm. out there. Even though it's really an entertainment piece, it really, um, it re there's so much to learn there on the marketing front. And then most recently, he just did a, a feature called GameStop, um, Rise of the Players, which- yeah. We, we um, had him on the show uh, a couple months ago. Oh, cool, yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah so I, I love the way he, he tells a cool, he, he tells a story about, um, you know, business phenomenons, um, and I think he did a he did a good job with uh, with history of the future. Um, you know, uh, my involvement was um, you know minute compared to the Herculean effort it it took to stand up the company and uh, and um, make everything happen. Minute is probably even an overstatement. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, it was founded by three very close friends of mine. Uh, at the time, Michael, Brendan, uh, and Nate, and Palmer, we all met together for the first time uh, in LA when he was just a kid, you know, yeah. working on a headset. Um, and I had the, the opportunity to provide some seed funding to the guys. Um, and also, you know, due to my relationship with the guys, really have a front row seat of everything it took to uh, to go from, uh, from founding to sale in 18, yeah. 19 months. Uh, and it was a pretty, it was a pretty amazing thing. Yeah, I, I envy you. That's a real life experience beyond anything that happened financially. Well, yeah. maybe, maybe for our, for our listeners, go back a step. Um, when you said you provided seed funding, was that those were personal funds or do you have an actual fund and what do you do today? Give us a, give us a little broad strokes about you. So people say, okay, so we know he likes console wars, but uh, what about Greg? What does Greg do? Yeah, right, sure, let's, get sure. to, let's get to the meaty part here. Sure. So. <clears throat> Um, I, uh, in business, I've had, I've had two different lives. One was, uh, as an entrepreneur and a restaurant tour overseas. Um, I, I lived over in London from 2014 to 2020. Um, uh, and I was in the restaurant industry, always had a passion for technology. In 2010, I moved back to the States to join a small, uh, middleware startup in the video game space called Scaleform. Scaleform okay. was founded by Brendan E. Reeb and Michael Antonoff, two of the, of the founders of Oculus. And Nate Mitchell also worked there. And so we all worked together um, uh, for a little while. And that was an amazing experience because, you know, <clears throat> middleware is such a small part of the, the massive tool chain that it takes to create video games. Um, you know, you have audio media middleware, you have video middleware, and then you have the big middleware, the game engines, and then you also have modeling. And But, <clears throat> you know, because we were a small piece in a very large puzzle, we, we tried to work well with everybody and, and we needed to because we needed to integrate with all these different pieces. And through that experience, I you know, develop relationships with all the guys over at Unity and Epic and, uh, you know, and Autodesk and a bunch of different places. And so really got a sense of one, I built out a, a strong network in the space and two, really got a, a good sense of how everything works together. A year later, we were acquired by Autodesk. I then became the head of marketing for the games technology group. So that was kind of Max, Maya, uh, uh, Softimage, like all the kind of modeling tools. Um, and I stayed there for a little while. And part of my purview at Autodesk was, this was kind of during the time of Ouya and kind of the indie, this, this kind of movement and rise in indie game development. 
So Ouya came out with an Android console, all of the other big consoles, Sony and Microsoft were courting indie developers, trying to make it easier for gamers to, uh, or for developers to publish to their platform. And so I started to get involved with these smaller game studios and, and with the startup scene, uh, Autodesk moved me from where I was, which was Washington DC over to San Francisco. You can't help but get caught up in the startup scene when you're in the Bay Area. So between my job and just my location, started to get involved with a bunch of different uh, startups. Um, and that was around the same time that, um, that uh, Brendan essentially introduced a few of us to Palmer, um, and that was the founding of Oculus. The great thing about being a part of something in its earliest days is that you can become an expert very quickly, right? So when nobody knows what the hell is going on and <laughs> what is this VR thing, what's going on, yeah. you know, because I have three weeks more knowledge and I have access to some people, all of a sudden I'm an expert in VR. And so I started- yeah, Charlie and I basically made a living at that too for the last uh, 20 years or so. <laughs> there, there you go. So, um, you know, so I, uh, you know, spoke at a few panels and, 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 um, and uh, you know, really just developed my network and started to get involved with other companies. Um, it was, as I mentioned, it was 18, 19 months from founding to exit for Oculus. And so when that happened, when I invested in Oculus, it was, it was purely my personal funds. Mm -hmm. And once the acquisition took place, then suddenly I was well capitalized to be able to start making investments on my own. <laughs> So I started angel investing um, in 2014 and did that for about two years. Um, you know, I, I think it was an interesting progression for me in terms of subject matter because I was deeply interested in AR, VR, gaming. That's kind of what I knew. But also as Oculus grew and uh, they needed to expand their expertise on team, I started hearing about, you know, what was going on in robotics and the amazing people that they were hiring in order to, uh, in order to calibrate these headsets. What was going on in computer vision in order to, in order to handle uh, tracking all these different areas. And so too, I, I became very interested in these other areas. Started to invest in some of these other areas, um, but it took me about two years to gain the confidence and the reputation to, to, to want um, uh, to, to create a fund. And so in 2000, uh, call it 2017, basically Anorak Fund One was born. Um, and uh, we made about 52 investments out of, out of Anorak Fund One. Now I'm investing out of Anorak Fund Two. Um, we're about a year into that. Um, and, you know, we're, we're investing at the earliest stages, pre-seed and seed um, in, you know, <laughs> I've been saying atoms to bits for a long time, and that's kind of the general thesis, I would say, of you know helping computers understand the world around them. And that is, for me, all things AR, VR, computer vision, um, artificial intelligence. Um, I do quite a bit in robotics, um, but I also just do general SaaS businesses that interest me. Um, and let's see, at a fund one, we have invested in a couple of big hits so far, Rec Room, uh, one of our largest, 
Enduro, Palmer's newest company, another one of our largest, and Flock Safety, which just announced a Series A E, uh, another one of our largest. So those are three unicorns that we invested in out of Fund One, and hopefully we've got a couple brewing in Fund Two as well. Um, you know, general thesis being companies being built around differentiated technology, atoms to bits, things like that. Yeah. Um, I invest. I invest in things that interest me. Well, and I think it can't be understated how critical the early, early stage seed investing culture is to effectively everything that sits around us today and, and allows us to kind of function in these atoms to bits world, right? In this world yeah. where we're using these advanced devices, they're starting to become consumerized. We're on, you know, video chat systems constantly now. It's become our preferred method of communication as opposed to telephony of years past, right? Um, and a critical, critical part of that infrastructure is people willing to take the earliest stage risk and effectively invest typically in the hundreds of thousands of dollars in startups, uh, yep. not into the, you know, seven, eight figure rounds. What is, which what is your average investment size with 52 investments? So the average investment size out of fund one was about $160,000. The average investment size out of fund two is about $250,000. So to Ted's point, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, I'm not investing millions. And for the most part, it depends on the opportunity, but for the most part, I'm not leading. Right. And in, you know, in the United States specifically, there's there's very little to almost no government support for these early stage companies and other companies for your, your entrepreneurial life in London, in the UK, you probably noticed there was a different culture around that, that the government would often try and fund early stage um, attempts at entrepreneurism. But in the US, it's largely privatized, right? And it, and it- Yes, that, that is exact, to your point, that is exactly how I got my business off the ground in the UK, was with government subsidized <clears throat> loans for small business. Right. Uh, the US, in my opinion, does a pretty poor job of supporting startups. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it lends to people like you and a little bit me. Uh, I think, I don't know, Charlie, if you, if you dabble in that at all, uh, I've you know, invested in about 10 or 15 well, things, not the 50 or so. I'm, I'm about as successful with venture investing as I have been investing in Broadway musicals. So <laughs> yeah, it's even uh, riskier than venture investing is Broadway. For me. <laughs> but but I, I guess I'm one of the few that really appreciates uh, and understands what it takes and the, the kind of, as we say in the old school vernacular, the kind of moxie it takes to take, you know, 50 or 60 shots out of a fund that has raised 10 or $20 million and try and deploy that effectively and find those unicorns and, and how risky it really is, how many things have great bones, but can never get to any kind of commercialization. You have to yeah. sort of be willing to, to do that and to, you know, it's, it's a gamble and, and you're, you're making what you believe are smart bets with smart people around you, but it is tricky stuff. So you, we, we admire that. Speaking of people you. around you, Greg, do you have a team or are there other VC <clears throat> company now, or how, how are you handling that? That's so much, I mean, even if you're not leading, you know, that's a lot of contracts and, I mean, just stuff. Tell me about it. Uh, so <clears throat> I, this is a sole GP structure. Um, uh, timely question, because we just brought on our first venture partner, uh, which I'm excited about. Um, I'm, I'm not going to say who it is and, uh, and anything. We'll make a, an announcement. <clears throat> We're still, the ink is still drying on all the paperwork, but um, it has gotten to a point where it's it's um, 
it's too much to handle for for me. Um, you know, <clears throat> uh, thirty personal investments. Uh, you know, coming up on seventy uh, fund investments. It is a lot to manage. Now, <clears throat> fortunately, there have been a number of services that have come up over the last you know five ten years that can really handle a bunch of that paperwork for you. But even still, there's a bunch of things that that um, that only I can do and uh, and and takes a lot of time. So we are we are scaling up. I will say. <clears throat> You know, I think typically what you see in ventures, you see somebody going from a, <clears throat> a $10 million fund to a $60 million fund to $150 million fund uh, and, and, and so on. Um, <clears throat> I think there's a bunch of reasons for that. Not all of them aligned with what's in the best interest for LPs. Um, I know what I'm good at and what I'm good at is identifying companies in their earliest stages and helping them get to that next stage. Um, and so, you know, to Ted's point, <clears throat> and I completely agree, like th this is the ecosystem all works together and I feel confident and, um, and, and I feel as though <clears throat> my contribution is really meaningful at the earliest stage. And this is where I shall stay. Um, <clears throat> and so operating a smaller, you know, 25 to $50 million fund, um, is, uh, is, is where I'm, I'm comfortable operating. Yeah. It's really interesting that you bring that up because I've seen that in my life over and over again, where the core DNA and the core understanding of the kinds of things, a person, you said like you were a single GP, a single general partner, it's your baby, right? You're applying your dollars that you've raised, uh, in various ways against this thesis. And then when companies try and make that transference to a 10x fund or a 20x fund, they often lose their DNA core. They actually don't understand the different tenants of an A round investor versus a C versus a seed investor, and they miss more than they more than they hit because the culture of it is different and the risk tolerance is different and the understanding of when you're investing in early early stage, you're investing in really core thesis of what might be a business someday. When you're investing later than that, you're investing in business practicalities. You're investing in, do you have the right team? Can you scale it? Is there a business there? Is there a market there for your, for your initial idea? It's two completely different things. And we often see funds that were really successful with their first thesis fail miserably with their second or third thesis because people gave them more money because they believed in their first thesis, but then their thesis changed and they didn't actually know because they come from the idea of let's build these, these ideas versus let's build businesses. Two very different things. It's, it refers a lot to this Malcolm Gladwell sort of world of the starter builder minder thesis in, in one of his books. And I'm going to blank on the name of the book, but his really successful book is Blink. And how, do you, how do you source that many deals? Is it at this point you're established and well-known? So, you know, people like me and others are sending uh, entrepreneurs your way. Do you go to why Combinator and look to uh, these kind of accelerators for deal flow? How, how yeah, I, it's a bit of all of the above. <clears throat> um, so I do have, you know, I, I've worked to build uh, a brand uh, in the areas that I focus in. And so <clears throat> I do get a decent amount of inbounds. Um, from people who I trust, from founders in the portfolio, from people who I've worked with beforehand. 
Um, and then I, and then there's also outbound. So I am, you know, I am going to Y Combinator. I am going to uh, Alchemist. I am going to, um, you know, I'm Hacks. I'm going to all the different demo days. Last time I saw you, in fact, was at a Betaworks event. Hmm. And, and I said, <laughs> and I told you to invest in my nephew's company. <laughs> That's right. They, I don't know if you did. They, they had a very nice exit. Um, stream? Yep. Man, I miss that. Ryan is stellar. Oh my God, I didn't even put two and two together. <laughs> that you guys, that Ryan and Charlie Fink, wow. Um, I remember taking him around with me at mm -hmm. eight in 2017 uh, and I had just uh, started writing for Forbes so I got invited to all the parties and I was dragging him around nice R R Ryan is Jeez. Ryan is phenomenal that that was uh, that's on that's they're in my anti-portfolio of companies that I missed out on to be fair Ryan pitched me very early with a different co-founder on an idea that was a little bit different um, he realized pretty quickly that the original co-founder wasn't the right co-founder. Find found the new guy um, or the other guy. Uh, what's his name, Charlie? I, I, Whatever his name is, he, I'm, not that, I'm not that inside of what they were doing. He, so. he he's he's phenomenal. The founder who he ended up working with to take it to exit. And uh, yeah, it, it's it's a brilliant idea, and he's continued to kick butt. Yeah. He's it's a very Can I, can I ask you this question as we probably are getting relatively close to wrapping up? Um, your take on crypto, NFTs, and virtual land might be very interesting for the people that listen to this podcast um, because it is such a controversial, wrought with controversy area. Uh, but from an early stage investor standpoint, I'd be very curious on your take on the frothiness and what's happening and your overall thought on those general areas of investing. Yeah, I think I think you used the right terminology there, frothy. Um, I, I think, <clears throat> look, anytime there is um, uh, there's a lot of money changing hands, um, uh, there are going to be people there who are um, uh, who are not playing on the level, who are who who are trying to shortcut and <clears throat> and make a quick buck. And I think crypto is a is a real example of that um, right now. Um, you know, I think that there have been a couple of things that have uh, that have happened, <clears throat> whether or not it was, um, you know, new tokens and ICOs to NFTs. And I think, you know, those who are very, who are early enough in there and who are in the know, it becomes a little bit of kind of an inside uh, club um, <clears throat> make quite a bit of money, um, and then um, and then the rest of it, you know, and then over time, whether or not it's ICOs or it's NFTs, the amount of everyday people who are able to um, uh, uh, make money from it, and I do believe that the majority of people are getting involved in order to make money. I think just kind of decrease. That's what we think too. Yeah, that it is. It's a highly speculative market that. The utility side of it is an afterthought or almost a no thought for most people yeah. that are in this, that it is a speculative yeah. ride up uh, and, yeah. and see when it, you know, when your cash out point is, yeah. which is interesting. I'll tell you uh, an interesting, <clears throat> an interesting thing is 
you know, <clears throat> I was kind of thinking about, so I have a bunch of investments in the gaming space <clears throat> and these companies don't necessarily want to build their own token or build their own uh, infrastructure. They want to, you know, they want to use an existing infrastructure in order to incorporate some elements of decentralization. Right. And they're, they're all trying to figure out what is the right uh, protocol to use. And I was thinking to myself um, that, I'm going to try to s express this succinctly, but I was thinking to myself, why are there not more organizations that are, um, that are trying to coordinate all of these different protocols and enable them to work more easily together. And uh, right, let me let me give let me let me back up and give people a sense of what you're talking about. So a lot of these things are living on Ethereum now, which was one of the very first blockchain infrastructures. There's a movement toward a new one called Polygon, which a lot of are adapting because less carbon footprint, more efficient, lower what's called gas fees, the fees to do transaction. And there's probably hundreds of others that you know we could call out a few names for. But this underlying infrastructure is what people are trying to figure out: is is Ethereum the appropriate place? to do a lot of these ultra micro transactions around not NFTs. Right now, but Ethereum is, uh, as you probably know, retooling. Yeah, and there's there are forks on Ethereum it, right? Process, but yeah, I mean, with, with the fees being what they are, it's no longer a practical platform, so. Right. So is that what you're talking about, Greg? Is that kind of what you're referring to? Or yeah, you're that, that's, that's, that's kind of what I'm talking about. I think, <clears throat> look, you, you need to have, you know, if there's going to be uh, these, um, if there are going to be the, if there's going to be this interoperability, um, and you can start to own your skins, you can start to own your, even, even something not as complicated as 3d objects, even if it's just skill points or social graph or whatever it is, you need to have a, you, you need to have a, 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 a protocol or a standard that people are adhering to in order to make it so that game developers can, can adopt that same protocol and enable them to and enable that interoperability. And so basically I put out this tweet and I said, hey guys, does anybody know if there is, you know, similar to the way the web has W3C, um, does anybody know if there's an organization that's working on decentralized protocols to help push the whole industry forward and, um, and create some standardization? And I even tagged a couple of people who I know and really respect in, in the space. And crickets, nothing. And I did more research and I spoke to more people to try to get a sense of this. And what I found is that everybody is trying to do this just for their own siloed protocol. Everybody is too busy trying to make money on yeah. their own individual protocol that they're not trying that people are not trying to cooperate and figure out how we do this in a much wider yeah, sense. Well, this is what what we largely refer to as the walled garden effect. That people are trying to build. And this, Charlie, if you'll if you'll, I know we're going a little long, but I think we have to ask Greg one more really interesting question um, because it does relate to the walled garden effect, right? People are trying to build their empires, their infrastructure to profit, as opposed to building the open standards that is a lot of things you invest in that allow a fabric to work across the way the web works today, right? Like we can use these protocols, these so, HTML protocols. No, right, equivalent of HTML. 
Yeah, exactly. So that's another deeper discussion. We should have you back on it. But this is maybe a really interesting question to ask Greg that we probably shouldn't go without asking. Um, since Greg, you were the beginnings, you and that small team with Brendan and, and Palmer and others and Nate, uh, of the meta of Facebook. And now Facebook has become largely that initial early, early stage vision that Mark Zuckerberg chose to invest in. Um, you have to have some opinion or some thought on where they're going and their, the recent gyrations in their valuation and, and stock price and all that based on the fact that you were the original meta, you guys. Um, I think, um... Gosh, we had to ask it, you know, it's a, yeah, big it's, question. It's, it's a tough question. I think, um, <clears throat> you know, everybody goes back to that. Mark is such a smart guy and Mark is, you know, I, I, and I do, and I do believe that, um, that uh, companies that are operated, public companies that are still operated by their founders you know, Salesforce, Amazon, Facebook do have that distinct advantage of still having the leadership in place that got them to this incredible yeah. Uh, uh, place. Yeah. So I do think he's a smart guy. I do think don't underestimate him. Um, <clears throat> but I also, uh, I, I also am am skeptical of what their future looks like. I I, I think that. Um, you know, the, the, the recent Connect presentation, you know, I kind of, I, I was saying, you know, long on glowing avatar, short on details. I was going to say, possibly over-promising. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think what he has shifted so much of his focus on, uh, on the metaverse, um, where monetization is still, still a massive TBD, um, uh, the whole space is still is still so nascent um, that it makes me nervous for the existing business and what is going to happen to the shares of Facebook, you know, in the near yeah. future. Well, and I think I, I'm I'm you know the I'm a big holder. I, I, I've had a whole bunch of Facebook stock for quite some time, and I, I and I'm continuing to hold. So I, you know I, I'm saying that there are a lot of smart people over there that are working on this and that are trying to figure it out. It's just not clear to me how they're going to do so. Yeah, um, that's a very good way to say it. I, to, to sort of give that a little succinct wrap point, um, what I think about a lot is organic growth versus inorganic growth. Mm -hmm. And when you see something that really starts to feel like they're really trying to push growth inorganically, it makes us worried. It doesn't make us so nervous that we're trying to divest from it. We do believe in the longer vision. We do believe that this is the way the web evolves and devices evolve and become ubiquitous. But an organic path versus an inorganic path, taking and committing and saying, I'm going to put this huge amounts of dollars into trying to make this happen, as opposed to a proper sort of evolution of technology, it, it makes the hairs on the back of my no. neck rise up a little bit. I'm like, I get really worried about that. Timing is everything. Yeah, yeah. timing is everything and our time is up. <laughs> That's a good last question though. Greg, thank you for coming on the show. This was fascinating. As my always, pleasure. I think I'm, I'm fascinated. I have a leaf blower right outside. Uh, you know, all, 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 things metaverse, all things metaverse are, sorry. You can make this up. Uh, awesome. All things metaverse are fascinating to me. I'm spending a ton of time in the space. 
I'm happy to come on again and speak to, uh, you know, speak about uh, any topics you guys want to go in deeper. And I'm glad that you guys are, are here kind of pushing, uh, pushing things forward. Great. We'd love to have you back. It was really an interesting conversation. Too. Great. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thanks, guys.